what would you like to share with listeners today? Other ways of responding to harm. Liberation. This sound shield that you could take with you to protest. Collaborative dialogue. Demystify the process. Liberation Loops. Hi, my name is Carly Beck and you're listening to Liberation Loops, a series that has been created from my bedroom um, with the assistance of 3CR on the land of the Wurundjeri and the Boonwurrung peoples of the Kulin Nation. This is a series that dives deep into people's practices to challenge the criminal legal system. And through this series, I hope to discover in what ways people are already addressing violence in our communities and what ways people are learning to heal from harm. In today's conversation, I speak with Annalise Arfat. Annalise is a community organiser, mother of two, behaviour change facilitator and family violence practitioner who is passionate about transformative justice. Annalise loves to think, reflect and practice accountability, prison abolition and absolutely loves Malifal. Annalise works with persons of diverse cultural and economic backgrounds and believes that social change can only occur collectively. Today's conversation delves deep into the work of changing harmful behaviours and this conversation highlights the importance of self-reflective practice and continuously practicing the balance of what Annalise calls coercive challenge and oppositional challenge. This afternoon, I'm at Insidium Radical Library. Um, It's quite a cool day today, actually. Um, Beautiful rain outside. And I'm sitting here with Annalise Arfat. Thank you so much, Annalise, for sharing your time this afternoon. Thanks for having me, Carly. So can you first start by telling listeners a little bit about how you came to be doing all of this work? Um, It's like a really probably a long story, Um, but I definitely got into collective organising when I was about, probably about, you know, 14, 15. So I got into the punk scene, which then kind of politicised me. Uh, And then I started joining various groups such as Food Not Bombs. I used to go into the old barricade books, which was on Sydney Road, and read the zines, uh, read a lot about prison um, abolition, read a lot about like prisoner solidarity. Um, and then probably when I, yeah, outside of that, I did a lot of, I guess, what, what would it have been called then, like anti-globalisation um, organising. Um, and then from there, it was a kind of odd but natural progression to like blockading, forest blockading, and then into wanting to do stuff around intimate partner violence um, in the like punk activist scene. And so, yeah, started uh, co-organising a World Without Sexual Assault collective, but was also a part of like university women's collectives as well. And yeah, I think I've always been politicised, like my family's really political Um, my dad, you know, always wanted to, for us to be like critical thinkers. And so I guess I, yeah, migrated to this country and was fed like a whole bunch of lies about it and used, um, those kind of thinking skills to be like, oh, like I want to do something around justice, um, on like, yeah, on so-called Australia. And now you do a lot of work um, with men's behaviour change groups. Can you tell listeners a little bit about this? Yes. So I worked with victim survivors for a long time. 
And I think there it got to a point where I was talking to somebody about the work that I was doing and they were like, have you tried uh, working in the kind of intervention response end with people who use family violence? And I was like, no, I've, you know, like I kind of hadn't thought about that before in terms of like in the service sector, but I had done a lot of work in community responses and interventions to people who use family violence in my communities. And yeah, so I decided it would be really cool to like build some skills. And that's, yeah, that's pretty much primarily why I was like, well, the only way I can see myself doing that is, I guess, trying to get some formal training and starting men's behaviour change groups. So, yeah, in this series that 3CR is producing, we really want to know um, some of the practical ways that people can, in their lives, um, use tools for like, community accountability and also work towards transformative justice. So what would you like to share with listeners today? Awesome. Well, I was thinking to share, I guess, like a framework and a tool, so which is called Collaborative Dialogue. And I think it's a framework because you kind of need to have a particular type of thinking to be able to do dialogue in this way. And then it's a skill because it's a doing. Um, so yeah, I wanted to share the ideas around collaborative dialogue. So tell us more about this form of dialogue and also what other forms of dialogue are there? Awesome. Um, well, the, maybe like I'll speak a little bit about historically. So the ideas around dialogue have come from Piolo Friere, who um, and other people such as Bell Hooks who are kind of in the realm of this education framework called critical pedagogies. And that was the whole, I guess, lineage of education which really challenged the, the idea that banking style learning was effective. And so in doing the anti-oppressive work that they, you know, people in that school of thought were doing, they discovered that when you worked with participants and students from their worlds, uh, they were more likely to engage, they were more likely to think critically about their worlds, uh, more open to learning than if you stood, you know, at the start, at the front of a classroom, um, telling people how to think. So both of them, I guess, and many other people as well, are, are in this um, field of work called dialogue work. So a bunch of people in the US, I guess, took the work of Friere and decided that it was really applicable to family violence work. Um, and their work was working with people who use family violence. And so they were doing a lot of intervention work um, and thinking about what, what is change, what is accountability, and what do you need for those things to happen. And I guess what they found was what you need is for people to be open to learning, open to thinking critically about their behaviour, um, open to thinking critically about their worlds, the way that they do and have relationships, um, the roles that they bring into those relationships, their thinking and beliefs. Um, and so then they started using this idea around dialogue. And then similarly, <laughs> there was also um, the ideas around narrative therapy, which um, in Australia is quite, I feel like it's quite big. And in narrative therapy, they talk a lot about restoring and dialogue um, and also uh, working collaboratively with, your, with people 
um, in your community or your clients or your, you know, the groups that you're running. And so these kind of two things together um, is, I guess, what I base my work on. Um, so like that's, yeah, historically, that's where the ideas around collaborative dialogue have come from. Um, and it's, you know, people are always like, have this idea of making sure things are like evidence-based. And wonderfully, there's a new um, piece of research that came out from Anne Rose, which is called Invitational Narrative Approaches to Working with Men Who Use Family Violence. And that just gives like such a wonderful um, piece of research that really solidifies that invitational narrative approaches, um, e.g. dialogue work, is effective um, in supporting people through their journeys of accountability and journeys of change. So can you kind of describe how you engage with people in this form of dialogue? So what does like a session maybe look like? Yeah, definitely. So there's, yeah, definitely skills in terms of what dialogue work is. Um, and it probably looks different for, you know, each person doing it. But um, it's definitely about having like an intentional practice. So often if we're thinking about things like micro-counselling skills, one of the kind of prime things that people learn is, uh, for example, to like validate your client. But if you're working with uh, someone who uses family violence and their story of their use of family violence includes minimising and blaming, um, excusing their behaviour, then we're not wanting to validate that. Um, but we're wanting to validate um, that that's how they're presenting. But so, for example, like in terms of dialogue work, we would want to be intentional about how we're doing that work with somebody. So we're wanting to support that person to, I guess, restory um, their denial and their blame um, and, um, you know, the things that they're using to, that kind of gets in the way or blocks um, them being able to, you know, take responsibility and move towards change, move towards accountability and responsibility, move towards nonviolence. So we're kind of supporting that person to do that, but we're doing that by being, for me, being strength-based. So we're looking for things that that person is telling us about how they want to be in the world, um, which for a person working with that person, it's important that we have the thinking that that person actually does want to change and that um, it's important for us to have the belief that people can change, um, the belief that people do want to have different kinds of relationships uh, and that they know themselves that the relationships that they're having um, are not good for them or their family or their intimate partner. So like with that belief, we're kind of looking out and hearing for the ways that that nonviolent ways that that person wants to be in the world um, and the ways that they are demonstrating things like trust and support, nonviolence, things that they are demonstrating accountability, um, the ways that they're demonstrating shared responsibility. So we're like really tuning into that with the person that we're working with or the, the group that we're working with. Um, and then looking to see what kind of beliefs and thinking that they need to be able to dem keep demonstrating um, those actions of nonviolence. Um, and so we're looking at that, those beliefs and thinking 
and then we're exploring like the impact of that so then you know what does that look like when you have the belief that your partner is just as valuable as you are and then your action of that is that means that you're more likely to listen to them more and validate that they might have a different idea to you that's just as valid um, you know so what's the impact of that on your partner on your family um, and then we're looking out for also when people are wanting to do that but there's been past harm um, what does that mean if you're you know trying to work towards nonviolence, but you have caused harm. Uh, so what does that look like for your partner um, or your family when, you know, they have experienced that harm from you? And so are there like additional things to be mindful of? Has trust been lost or broken? Um, is there fear from your family? Um, is there ways that your partner or family are responding to you making those changes which might be challenging for you because you've opened up a space where they're able to voice things back to you. Maybe they weren't doing that in the past. So what are the things then to be mindful of when you know, there's been past use of violence? So we're kind of leaning into these things in a strength-based way, like hearing out for how people want to be um, and also exploring like the beliefs and thinking that lie underneath that. And then the beliefs and thinking that lie underneath um, their behaviour that has been abusive and harmful um, to actually kind of explore the contradictions um, and explore how they might move then and shift into the non-violent beliefs and looking at the benefits, I guess, um, of that kind of world for, for themselves. Yeah, but I think, I think a lot of it interestingly has to do with like even though it would seem like the focus is on the person who's caused harm I actually think so much of the work has to be on the person working with that person so if you as a practitioner or as a friend even or like you know if you're doing community interventions community responses um, if you yourself have beliefs that um get in the way of you working with that person towards their journey, um, then it can kind of undo, undo the work for them. Um, so I think there's a lot of self-reflective work that we need to do in community accountability so that we are accountable to that person, that person's partner and family, um, and also to like our wider community. Yeah, it just sounds like as a practitioner, um, you just have to balance a lot of um, like coercion as well as challenging somebody. Mm. And do you find that this work works well with like peer supported learning? So groups of people maybe who have caused harm or do you find that it's much better to work one-on-one -on -one with somebody? Yeah, I think like I love the power of group work. Um, and you know, there's so much in terms of like in an appropriative way where that history has come from, which has come from learnings from um, First Nations communities around circle work. Um, and so like we know that it's really powerful for people to learn in, in groups, in circles, and really rich learning can come from that. Um, so I'm definitely biased in that way. I have definitely worked with people that like hate <laughs> coming to a group, um, but they also perhaps like you know, haven't been in that environment ever in their life and take a little bit of time to adjust to it. But I do think 
the kind of experiential learning that can happen when you're in a group is more powerful than one-on-one. Um, and you can kind of see that working in groups because there's more people there, there's more minds, there's more discussion in bet- you know, between people, more ideas. Um, but I also think that individual one-on-one work is really important for people to have their own space, um, to be able to, I guess, be supported in that way. Um, so, I, yeah, I think, especially when we're thinking about, you know, the premise of kind of why we're doing this work, um, you know, we're doing this work to hopefully, um, you know, build communities of nonviolence and increase safety. So, yeah, thinking about... I want to be doing stuff that kind of suits different people's learning styles. Um, And yeah, group work is really powerful, but so is working with somebody individually. And a mix of those is really important. As well as I think probably not doing this work in isolation. So if somebody has lots of stuff going on in their lives, then I do think it's important to support them in that as well. Like often, if the only work we're doing with somebody is their use of violence and they have other things like maybe they're you know struggling with housing or um, you know different dependencies um, and if we're not supporting that person on that I just think it is harder than to create a space of you know, let's do some critical thinking work around your use of violence. Um, and that person could be like, but you don't care about me because you're not doing the work to support me in this other bit of my life. So I think definitely something that I've seen in terms of um, like, yes, like dialogue work is really powerful when we're doing the work around violence, but like there needs to be more stuff that's happening in community responses, um, such as like yeah, so supporting like the breadth of people's lives. The power of just material support um, can never go astray, really. Um, and just understanding state violence as well and how, yeah, we live under a colonial occupation that is not um, in the interests of a lot of people that live on this continent. And I guess, how can listeners use collaborative dialogue in their day-to-day lives or maybe start engaging with people in their lives that um, are causing harm? Mm. I think one of the cool things about collaborative dialogue is it just makes you a better friend in general. So it's like a skill that is not only good for talking to people that have caused harm, but for like anyone in your life that you're wanting to have like deeper conversations with. Um, And you said before that kind of struggle between or balance between Um, you know, what is like coercive challenge and what is oppositional challenge. And often like in these kind of like ad hoc, I guess, communities, um, there can be like really different reactions to things. Um, And, you know, in terms of like research stuff, we know that like, um, and and this is tricky too, because, you know, I'll say that... um, when we're talking about like oppositional, if somebody has experienced harm and they are responding, then that is completely and utterly an okay way to respond um, is to be oppositional. Um, But when I'm talking about like people intentionally doing the work with people that use violence, then we know that like being oppositional is not going to create a space for that person um, to be able to think and do differently. And I think... Yeah, the nuance of that is really, really important. 
but in terms of like the skills I think like the idea of like meeting somebody where they're at and like being intentional so it's like you're not just validating you're validating for what purpose you're listening for what purpose so you're listening to somebody's like ethical preferences the ways that they want to be um you're validating perhaps like the feeling of being challenged by the conversation but you're not validating their story of minimizing the use their use of violence or blaming um, or making excuses um, you're working in a strength-based way so you're looking at all of the ways that your friend is already like demonstrating um, equality and equity in their lives and the things that they are is important for them and might not be in that relationship but you know dig dig and like find the things that your friend is already doing and thinking um, and like have a belief that they want that as well which is sometimes difficult but I think it's important for us to have um, and you know working with someone in a way that yeah isn't like lectury um, isn't like telling them what they've done isn't putting words in their mouth um, isn't screaming at them isn't replicating um, the the behavior that perhaps they're doing to their partner and you know and or family um, so finding things that aren't like asserting power and control over that person um, to be able to like yeah walk alongside them um, so like yeah listening deeply um, reflecting back their words asking further questions around you know why um, where their thinking is at with that and the impact of that thinking um, and what that looks like then for their partner and are there different ways of thinking, um, different ways of being and what then does that look like for their partner. So exploring those things in a very, yeah, I guess conversational way where the person like feels supported by you, where you're building trust and where you're also not, um, you yourself are not minimising and blaming. Um, and excusing. So if listeners are to engage in this kind of work and try and facilitate a conversation with somebody using collaborative dialogue, how long um, should people expect this process to take? Mm, that's a really great question. And I think it also like speaks to what I was saying before about our own like beliefs and thinking around change and accountability. So like if you hold a belief that somebody um, somebody's change process should be really quick then we are going to have like a whole bunch of expectations that perhaps can't be met um, so like in the context of the social issue which is like uh, we live in a world um, where you know what many people in this work call dominator culture um, so we're learning like all of these hierarchical ways of being in the world from you know, colonisation, from white supremacy, from racism, from patriarchy, um, transphobia, all of these like systems of domination and oppression. We're learning these from like the moment we're born. And so to unlearn these things is also probably, unfortunately, <laughs> going to take some time. And so although I think people can and do change really quickly, some of the like deeply embedded thinking um, might take longer to change. So, for example, I work with lots of people who, like, completely and utterly will say that hierarchy is natural and that we must have it. So, of course, if you're walking around the world thinking hierarchy is natural, we must have it, it's inevitable, 
then that's the way you will construct your relationship. Um, and so that person might, you know, walk alongside a journey of change and perhaps stop being physically violent, but perhaps their coercive control won't change because the underlying belief is that someone still has to be on top. Um, so I think, you know, when we're thinking about change, I'm like, how do we work, walk with somebody and towards that? We might not be there for like their lifelong journey of that, but hopefully we can get them in that direction rather than the other direction. Um, but, you know, we know that change can sometimes take a really long time. And so when we're thinking about community accountability work, I do think all of us need to be doing this work ourselves um, for our whole lives, like every day. Um, and if we're not practicing that every day, then um, it's going to be really hard when something does happen in that community um, or in your community. Uh, it will be really challenging because, you know, it might also confront, <laughs> um, you know, yourself in unexpected ways. Uh, but if we start to do that work ourselves, then we're less confronted and we can be prepared um, and we can support each other. And, you know, when I'm doing group work with people, like every group that I have, I think about something that I definitely need to shift in myself, like a kind of thinking that I grew up having, which created a certain type of behavior. And that's like every week I'm like, oh my goodness, like fuck, like that's really intense thing about me that I need to like undo. And you know, some of those things, um, I still have not changed. <laughs> so I'm like, you know, and I'm aware of those things. And I'm like, oh, I really want to change that thing. It affects people negatively. Um, so, you know, trying to have like groups of people around you that are supporting you to make those changes and like, um, you know, being in dialogue with you and opening up that space with you is so important. But also not having the expectation that like um, change is quick because sometimes it's not um, and we still need people to be working with that person or those people throughout their lifetime um, especially if we're in this work where we think that you know replicating prisons and putting people in prisons is not effective um, then we do actually need to do this work over the course of someone's life and keep doing it. And there's just so many different tools that people can use when it comes to community accountability. When have you seen collaborative dialogue maybe not work so well? Yeah, I think times when I've probably seen it not work so well is, I mean, kind of often, I think what people expect is, so we've, we live in this world that we've, we've gone to school with like banking style education, um, we mostly, like most people in the communities that I am in, like they're communities of choice often um, and they're communities where like there's lots of transients, um, there's perhaps like not heaps of trust. So I think in many ways people have an expectation of being punished and then when you're trying to do like the work of collaborative dialogue, people are like, fuck off. Like, um, you know, what is this? So it's, yeah, it's often like a confusing thing for people to be like, I actually like want to work with you in this way. So I think even that kind of takes some lots of time to like 
um, work with people to gain trust um, because there's expectations that it's going to go another way. Um, and yeah, I think people also in terms of group work, like many people like haven't been in kind of a space of critical thinking for a long time. So that's a challenge. Um, so it's not that critical dialogue doesn't work in those spaces, but it's about creating the conditions where people are wanting to step into it. Um, especially because if we're thinking about, you know, community accountability, uh, people are not mandated in the same way that the state mandates people into a men's behaviour change program. Like I feel like people are socially mandated in community accountability, but it's really different. Um, so yeah, I think it's like not that it doesn't work, but there are challenges to like creating the conditions for it to like thrive. Yeah, I absolutely agree. I think we're all socially conditioned to learn a certain way. And so when people expect to be taught a certain way, then they're not going to maybe engage the first few times that you want to engage in collaborative dialogue with somebody. Um, and on that note, thank you so much, Annalise, for joining me this afternoon on 3CR. Thank you so much. It was lovely to talk to you. And that was a conversation that I had with Annalise Arfat about collaborative dialogue and the work of changing harmful behaviours through intentional conversations. Tune in next week to hear a conversation that I have with Vincent Silk, writer, poet and community organiser. We chat about everything from his first novel, Sisters of No Mercy, to the ways in which writing and literary works can challenge people's perceptions of the criminal settler legal system. See you next week.